You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions change their careers, what relationships influenced their work. My guest today is director, writer, and cinematographer, Carrie Fukunaga. Fukunaga produced and directed season one of HBO's moody, unsettling, and highly successful crime drama, True Detective, set in and around New Orleans. He has three feature films under his belt as well, shot in Mexico, England, and Ghana. For Carrie Fukunaga, each production is as unique as the shooting location itself. Every movie so far has been so different in that sense, in the same way like every relationship is different. There are general things that are the same, you know, film to film, but my first movie was such bliss in terms of the, the general passion of the crew and how much everyone sort of filled in the gaps. For Sin Nombre. For Sin Nombre, yeah. And then Jane Eyre was like, you know, it was like a mercenary army where at 11 hours and 59 minutes, people were ready to pull the plug and go home. It took me about half of that film to win over the crew, and I think it was necessary. I think you need the crew on your side. So yes, there's a, there's a level of it, but that's also why you start surrounding yourselves with uh, the same heads of department so that you don't have to win them over. They get it, and then their sort of uh, loyalty and They're your people. They're your people, and their loyalty and enthusiasm sort of trickles down. The uh, Sin Number, was that a short film that was made into a studio film, correct, or a feature film? Right? Yeah, the short was a slightly different story, but same world. It was about a truckload of immigrants that were abandoned in South Texas, and it was in a refrigerated trailer so uh, a lot of them suffocated to death, very similar to what happened just uh, last summer in, in Austria. You went to NYU film school? Yeah, grad and, film. And, and you went to grad film. Where did you go undergrad? I uh, went to Santa Cruz. For? Uh, history and uh, a little bit of political science. I went for a year to, the, to a political science institute in Grenoble, France. And you grew up in Northern California? Yeah, I'm from the East Bay, um, but I've lived all around the Bay Area, moved every couple of years. So I did a kind of a ring around the Bay Area. But then when I go home now, I go home to Oakland. And your father or both your parents were born 
in an internment camp, or one, one of them was? Uh, my dad was. He was born in an internment camp. He and my uncles are born. Uh, he was born in Topaz. My uncles were born in Tule Lake because um, my family were no-nos, which means they signed no to uh, two questions that the U.S. government posed all Japanese Americans put in these camps. One was, do you uh, forswear citizenship or allegiance to your birth country or your country of your race, which is Japan? And then the second question is, will you fight in the U.S. military? And if you answer no to both those questions, you are sent to this other camp, which was sort of under martial law the entire war. That's where your father was? Yeah. Does he talk much about that? Or has he? I think he was like three when he left, and then uh, the Japanese were moved to a sort of ghetto, if you will, in Richmond, in the Bay Area. And uh, from there, they sort of worked and moved out within the next couple of years. Your mother is not Japanese. No. So she's, you know, middle American, Swedish heritage, you know. You're Japanese and Swedish. Basically, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Describe to me, when you do a film and you come in there, what you feel the job is, what, what is the task? I had a conversation uh, with Alfonso Cuaron right before I went into Jane Eyre. And it was the first time I would be directing a screenplay that I didn't write myself. And he said something really simple but very important, which was uh, your job as a director is not to just illustrate somebody's screenplay. Your job is to make it something entirely different. And I think it's just really good advice because I think many people are very precious about writing. Writing is essential, especially for dialogue and, and general story and plot. But the screenplay in terms of cinema and movie making is really just a starting point. It's a, it's a floor plan where the finishing work is going to come you know, much later. So I look at it as uh, trying to figure out what my unified vision is going to be, what the overall emotion, emotional impact of the story is, and what state I want the audiences to be in when they're done. So when you go from Sin Nombre to you're on the set directing Judy Dench, how did that feel? It was, I was very aware uh, that she had already at that point had done more movies than I will ever do in three of my lives. So was she kind to you? Super kind. Right. She doesn't mind direction. She likes direction and wants, wants to make the director happy. And that made it a lot easier because at first I wasn't sure what I could say to her. Prior to that, I'd really only been directing uh, uh, non-professional actors. You graduated from NYU f graduate film school when? Oh, well, technically I haven't graduated yet. But you attended there when? Uh, 2002 to four or five. And when you had left Santa Cruz with your—did you get a degree in history? Yeah. When you left, I wasn't sure if you didn't finish there either. When you <laughs> left, I don't, I don't want to assume anything now. But when you left Santa Cruz with a degree in history and you went to NYU, how did that happen? Meaning what, what, what made you want to go to a graduate film program? Well, I, I think I'd wanted to do movies for a long time. Started writing my first shorts when I was like 10. Wrote my first— So you had the bug before. I had the bug before and, you know, saved up when I was 14 to buy a video camera would write stories. And, and then in college, I think I decided to pursue snowboarding and sports as a career and potentially, you know, be a professional snowboarder. And by the time I was 20, 21, I was starting to realize that might be a, a really impossible dream at that point. Usually, if you're not like on the A-team by age 17 or 18, you're never going to catch up. So I started to uh, write stories again. I thought about getting a double major at Santa Cruz in film, and I went and talked to the head of the department and he made it seem like I'd have to be there two more years to study film, and I wasn't going to stay in Santa Cruz. So I, I basically, I traveled for a bit, and then I went down to L.A. and started crewing. What was the first movie you crewed on? The first big production, I did a couple of indies around the Bay Area, but the first production I showed up on in Los Angeles was a, a pickup shoot for uh, a Destiny's Child Survivor. 
out at Zuma Beach. <laughs> it was amazing. I mean, like, I, first of all, I didn't have to pick up cigarette butts. I had a pretty cool job. I was on the camera truck, and so I was right up there with the cinematographer and watching, uh, uh, you know, Beyonce do her thing. It was a video? Or? It was a video, oh, yeah, was yeah. I mainly worked on music videos and commercials out there. A few Any indie, features? Like some indie features that I don't think ever went anywhere. Now, why NYU? I mean, as, as a native of California, mm-hmm. even north, which— I'm always mystified when natives of Central or Northern California leave because it's so beautiful there. I mean, LA, I can see you wanting to get out of there because it's so crowded. But but the uh, why NYU? I, th- I think especially if you're from the East Bay, like Oakland and Berkeley, uh, Brooklyn is very analogous as cities and the multicultural. You want to cross a bridge to go home? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> or not? <laughs> or or also, I, I mean, you just want to be in a place. Uh, there's a there's an urban side to the Bay Area. That you like, even with San Francisco being a very small, big city, but it's still a big city that I grew up with that Los Angeles didn't have. And I think also when you grow up in, in Northern California, you, you grow up with a sort of natural antagonism for the Southern California that most Southern Californians aren't even aware of. So it's like when you're in college for the first time together, the Southern Californians had no idea that Northern Californians didn't like them. And then Northern Californians really, we have no reason not to like them, except we were just raised to not like the South for sure. some reason. It's like in New York, we have an upstate, downstate thing here too. So you come here. Did you take to New York? Did you? Where do you live now? I live in the West Village. You do. So you yeah. like New York? You took to it. I, I've been here for almost fifteen years. So yeah, I've, I've taken to it. And when you finished the NYU graduate program, and according to your, uh, you know, you just press, uh, you know, click on the internet or what, what you, where your career took you. Uh, there's a lot of time in between sin nombre and when you left the graduate film program. Correct. It seems like it, but if you think about the the chronology, so my short was at. Uh, I shot the short at the end of 2003. Uh, started, I finished it by the summer of 2004. It was at Sundance in 2005. And then I was at the Sundance Writing Lab in 2006. I was making it in 2007. 2008 did post. 2009 it came out. So it, yeah, it seems four years go by. You squeeze the hell out of that Sinombre experience, yeah. obviously. <laughs> you wrote that thing for five years. It was the college. Writing labs. Yeah. So when you're done, done, done with that, Sinombre's done what year? Uh, I, I finally finished it in 2008, but it didn't come out until 2009. The next thing for you was Jane Eyre in 2011, correct? Yep. And what do you think it was that they hired you for to do that movie? Well, actually, it was— Did they convey that to you? They, it, it wasn't really happening. It had been sitting on a shelf at the BBC for a while. And I had a general meeting um, with the BBC executive, and I just asked what they had. And uh, Jane Eyre was a project I was actually thinking about adapting— while I was waiting for Sinombre to get the green light. So I had this six months off, you know, between thinking we're making it and then having it pushed for like eight months. And I just wrote Beast of No Nation at that time period. And By yourself? Yeah. yeah. All by yourself? I adapted the novel uh, at the end of 2006 and um, basically was thinking about well, what else can I write while I'm waiting? I just, I wanted to stay busy. And uh, Jane Eyre was one of my favorite uh, movies when I was a kid because my mom liked the old black and white classics. So... Uh, uh, Bob Stevens' version with Joan Fontaine and Orson Welles was like uh, one of my f- childhood favorites. And I thought about adapting it and, and updating it. I had no idea there were so many other adaptations out there. Zero. I, I, when I uh, sought it out at the BBC, I still didn't know. It wasn't so I, I'd signed there on. There are more Jane Eyre's than there are Frankensteins out there. Basically, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, or, or Spider-Man's or He-Man, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Hulks. Uh, so, yeah, so I was unaware of them, and then when I found out there were so many, I just consciously ignored them. But um, I sort of was the one that pulled it off the shelf again and, and brought it to Focus Features. So it wasn't like they solicited me. I actually asked to read it, and then I met with Al Snow and the producer, 
she asked what I would change in the screenplay, and I, I told her the things I wanted to change, but essentially I felt it was pretty pretty good, I thought. But that, why that? Why did you want to do that? I wanted to do a period piece. I, I was a history major. I love history. I, one day I want to do giant epics, you know, uh, a la Lawrence of Arabia. So, yeah, so the, the Jane Eyre for me was a, a primer. It was a way to show that I could do a period film, a classic film. Um, Seen Normbray in many ways was still like my short film from college, and I, I believe in sort of studying classics before branching out and experimenting. And um, I thought doing— What did you learn on Jane Eyre? What was, what was the, the learning curve for you on the production? I think about took, acting, about cinema, cinematics, anything. All those things, because what I learned about was stillness. Like, so much of contemporary cinema is filled with uh, showmanship and pizzazz and, and using visuals to hide for a lack of storytelling. And what I wanted to learn about was doing as little as possible and try to tell a compelling story. In terms of the camera? In terms of the camera, in terms of even, uh, you know, uh, Bron- the Bronte, Charlotte Bronte in particular, wrote really extensive dialogue scenes. And as a director... In a great dialogue scene, you're just there to observe because the actors are the ones doing all the work. You know, they're they're all the, the dramatic fireworks are coming from them, and there's an impulse to try to do something because you're not really doing anything there. You're not moving the camera. You're not really able to 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 shape that in any other way or manipulate it. Maybe is a better word. And I what I learned there, and I talked to Alice Known about it while we we're shooting. I was just like. I don't feel like I'm doing anything all day. <laughs> and and she's like, it's fine. This is, this is it's okay. It's funny you have to say that because one of the first movies I made was Beetlejuice. And there was a woman named Linda Henriksen who was my customer on the film. And they had summoned some of the people in to come look at the dailies the first couple of days to see how their stuff was looking on film. And, and I said, how did it look? I never wouldn't go to the dailies because I found it very unsettling. I said, how did Gina look? I said, because when I work with Gina, she does almost nothing. It's almost as if you wonder... They say action, and you wonder, did she even hear them say action? And Linda said to me, oh, my God, he said, she's incredible. Yeah. You know, because 40 feet across and 20 feet high, the slightest little thing, it was just, she said, she's so entertaining, and you can't take her eyes off. You can't take your eyes off her. Yeah, and that's, that's uh, I think, both Fassbender and, and Mia uh, brought a lot of that, you know. The stillness. Stillness. And uh, you oftentimes can't see it, even on the monitors when you're watching, because of these tiny screens, but... As soon as you start projecting that stuff, especially Mia's performance, there's just the veins in her neck and little things in her and adjustments in her face or in her eyes that are coming from some central emotional place were so powerful. And that wasn't me. That was her, you know. So when you come out of that, you do, you're a history major from Santa Cruz and you come out of that and you make this film, uh, this Bronte novel. And what's the next thing for you? True Detective. <laughs> I mean, the first thing I thought to myself when I saw that and I hadn't met you was because the, the, the show for people who don't know, and there are very few people who don't know, the show it was 10 episodes this season, the first, the, the first season. And the first season was written by? Nick Pizzolatto. Right. So Nick Pizzolatto wrote the first season and you directed how many of the 10 episodes? Uh, it was eight episodes that I directed all eight. So, so season one was eight episodes, right. and you did all eight. Right. And, and so did you know that going in? Did they say to you from the get-go, we want you to come and do all eight episodes of the show, or did you do a couple and they went, wow, we really like him, we want you to stay? The idea, so I was there as part of the pitch, and the idea was it was going to be like an anthology, and every year they'd bring in— Well, you were there as part of the pitch how? Uh, we packaged it. We packaged it within anonymous content. Uh, Nick is a writer there. I'm a director writer and what there. Ma- and what made them want the guy from Jane Eyre to come do the— is, oh, Searing, <laughs> violent, blood-spattered, insane. What did you think they saw in you? I actually have I've never asked them that question. I should sit down with Steve Gollin and ask him. 
Um, never occurred to you. Never occurred to me. I was just, uh, we, we had conversations about it, had ideas. Um, I knew sort of how I'd want to treat it. Uh, I loved the idea of, of sort of a neo-noir. Um, and uh, I was more than anything, I was excited about genre shifting again and not staying in Who the Who cast world. the show? Was it HBO? I mean, because HBO is very hands-on. Yeah. Well, did, you mean just in terms of bringing in Matthew and Woody? Right. Uh, well, what happened there was— I'm sure you could have your pick of a lot of actors. It was, it was, it was actually a really good time because th- that was right after Jane Eyre had come out. And basically, I, in the same, th- same way with Jane Eyre, like Fassbender and Mia were my first choices. So I just, got, I just had conversations with them, you know, and, and then through the conversations, they, they signed on. Same thing with, with Dame Judy. Everyone said, you're not, you're not going to get Judy to be in this. And I wrote her just a little note and, and just sort of— You're very lucky. I'm very lucky. You're incredibly lucky. I'm, I'm aware of this, by the way. You're good, but you're lucky and good. But, but, but so any time I saw a man with a beard who seemed like that kind of crispy— biker gang crowd that McConaughey goes back to get high and reconnect with and prove himself with by getting like super stone. Those are some of the best stone scenes I've ever seen in my life, ever. I mean, I was getting a contact high just watching it. And then every time I saw a guy with a beard, I wanted to run up and break a chair over his face or run in the opposite direction crying. Like you put the fear of God in me by, by, by the, 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 the madness and, and the real interiority of those guys. I don't know how I did it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> how did you do that? I don't know. I mean, I was trying to. I was wondering if you're going there, and I think about that. You it's know, if, if, if you emotionally too. Well, I, I try to think about the movies we watch, say an action film, right, where it's filled with all these sort of big set pieces, uh, and uh, um, you know, the, the body count is extremely high. And why is it we can watch that and laugh and eat our popcorn? It doesn't really affect us. But then a movie with like where one person's killed can just you know, we can't shake the image. I, I, I try to think about that in terms of, like, what I'm going for for execution in terms of the mood or tone of a scene or even the impact of something violent in the story. Maybe sometimes just the banality of it, you know, through, through again, the stillness and not trying to oversell something. It's the seduction of thinking everything's normal when it's, it's not, you know. What I loved about your show, for the most part, uh, uh, it was— numbingly real. Those scenes where McConaughey goes back to that group and tries to befriend those guys and, and everything that goes on there through the shooting and the killing and the kind of uh, 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 the fusillade that takes place and then they all bolt. Uh, the only question I have, <laughs> so whose idea was it for McConaughey to keep cutting open the soda can all the time? Uh, that was definitely Nick's idea because it was... Ooh, Nick's idea. I mean, and then I want to register that complaint because I thought if he cuts one more fucking soda can... I was just talk about continuity, man. That was a pain in the, the ass. The smoking and the, 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 the characterization through smoking and cutting the soda can, I thought, okay, we've had just about enough of that right now. Yeah. And the other thing is that I, I, I will say it, that also made it so great, other than your work, and I really mean that you did an amazing job, uh, is uh, how much I worship Woody. I'm a complete – you tell me Woody's in the movie, I'm there. I worship Woody. He's, some people just have that magic. There's no one else in the world like Woody Harrelson. There isn't. There is not. And, uh, you know, that, that's what he uh, he brought to the scenes, too. He's like, he's got a, a special energy. and a, He's got uh, everything. It's, uh, you, and you never know what it's going to be. It's unpredictable. Yeah. He, he, he's masculine. Yeah. He's playful. He's intelligent. He's loopy. 
Did you enjoy working with him? Yeah, no, I mean, he was, uh, he, he, it, I enjoyed not only what he was doing on screen, but just sort of his energy, just on set and around Amazing set. Guy. How long did it take to shoot the eight episodes? Uh, did they leave you alone and you had a decent amount of time, or was it tight? It was pretty tight. It was pretty tight. We were, every day, it was pretty stressful. Uh, we shot it in 100 days, so what does that work out to? It's a little bit more than 12 days an episode. Yeah. Um, where did you shoot? Louisiana, outside right. of New Orleans, yeah. yeah. And Pizzolatto wrote all of it? Yep, wrote the whole thing. And how much were uh, Woody or McConaughey or you or other people allowed to uh, do some alterations to that, do some alternate takes, alternate lines? There was definitely, uh, in the in the shaping of the narrative, there was a lot of collaboration early on. And then I think Woody and Matthew, Woody uh, definitely brought humor into it for both characters and made sure that the um, the interplay between the two guys was more balanced and fair. Uh, earlier drafts, I think, the Cole character, Matthew McConaughey's character, uh, was just sort of just spewing out stuff. and, and, and His wife was played by? Uh, Mich- uh, Michelle, Michelle Monaghan. And yeah. Michelle Monaghan. I couldn't believe you got Michelle Monaghan to do that sex scene with uh, McConaughey. I was stunned. Yeah. Well, I thought, Michelle Monaghan, no, she would never do that. <laughs> and here she is having a very, you know, like almost hardcore sex scene with him. I thought, my God. I, I think we only did one take of that one, too. That was an intense scene. I certainly scene. hope so. Yeah, that was a really intense scene. And I was obviously trying to be sensitive to Michelle. Um, and what was her attitude about doing that? Because it's interesting. In this day and time, mm-hmm. I find that women nowadays, it's like, it's like let's not even go there. Let's not even. It, it's, it's tough because there was three different girls that had to do sex scenes in the show. And... My first movie, there was kind of a sex scene, but I was really uncomfortable. I couldn't even ask the girl to take her top off. You know, right. I just felt really out of place there. And it's not fun. It's just a, it's a strange thing to be a guy yeah. with the, if you sit, sit down with her in the makeup trailer and the producer and kind of describe what we're looking for. It definitely has to be character-based. And I think Michelle understood both for the Woody scene when they're, in, as a couple married, how they come back together at that point in the dramatic arc of their relationship. The sex scene was important to show that connection, to show it still exists. And then later on, the sex scene with Matthew was sort of essential for understanding the split between them and how she drove it. But is she down for that, though? Yeah. Well, is there some kind of—this is part of directing. Yeah. Well, well, so Matthew, again, is very—he's very, he's very uh, planned, and he has ideas for things. So, you know, Matthew's like, well, first I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this. He choreographs. He choreographs the sure. whole thing. And <laughs> but you have to, basically. It's like a partner dance, and yeah. Michelle's That's there. Arthur Murray. And then we pull Michelle aside, and like, are you okay with all of these things? And Michelle always had— the, every every girl had the 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 cut call, so they know they're allowed to call cut in a situation like that, and they had to feel comfortable to be able to call cut. That's also a big thing. You can say that, and then they still feel like, oh, I, they're, I'm not going to be. They're going to. So did Michelle never call cut, or did she call cut 27 times? That she, day? Well, we only did uh, uh, on the Matthew day. We only did that one take, and on Woody's, I think we did two, and she called cut both times. Fukunaga created an atmosphere on the set of True Detective that allowed his actors to give exceptional performances. Both McConaughey and Harrelson were nominated for a Golden Globe and a Screen Actors Guild Award. Explore the Here's the Thing archives, where I speak to director William Friedkin about his unorthodox casting process. Roy Scheider, when I cast him, he said, don't you want me to read for this part? I said, there's nothing to read. The guy goes, ah, uh, uh, get your hands up. Get over What What is that? Who wants to listen to that? In a, in a goddamn conference room, you know? Take a listen at heresthething.org. Hello, Clem 
comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old <laughs> Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest today is director, writer, and cinematographer Kerry Fukunaga. His latest feature film, Beasts of No Nation, depicts the horrors of a civil war in an unnamed West African country. Critically acclaimed for its story, direction, and acting, the film, however, did not get a single Academy Award nomination. There was a couple things going against us, which was not having a a major studio with its sort of uh, locked-in Oscar voters. Who released the film? Uh, Netflix released the film. Having Netflix as a perceived online-only game player. People thought it was a TV show. That was a TV movie. Uh, I think subject matter, we knew, I know, uh, most people would discover it once all the voting was done. And, and, and still a bulk would never see it, ever, in the future. So I think we thought it was a long shot. Of course, Did Netflix you, learn a lot from that experience about how they're going to do that differently from now on? I hope so. I, you know, we have, we have yet to have a real follow-up conversation. Like, Would you like to? Yeah, and I, and I have ideas, but they also, you know, the, the game— is changing in terms of how people consume movies. 
the awards aren't going to immediately reflect that. They're still going to be looking over here. You know, it's and I, and I, um, I I and I say this with all honesty. This is not out of like, well, I don't care. It's I actually haven't watched the Academy Awards in over ten years. You didn't watch the Academy Awards when I hosted with Steve Martin in 2010. What you meant to say was that in 2010 you made an exception. Yeah, yeah. Then and you watched the one that I hosted. I watched it pirated on. You know, <clears> yeah, you watched it on. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. I, I stopped watching it around film school because we'd have these kind of uh, these pools to see who'd win the Oscars. And I would always lose the pool. Like, I, I, I voted so You were terrible at it. I was terrible. I always voted for the films that I thought deserved it. Exactly. And clearly that's just not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I kind of got that sense of it. And, and, and then I'm, over the years when I saw the films that were being nominated, I just had zero interest. I really did. Yeah. And, uh, but that doesn't mean that when you're not nominated, you're not like, you know, feeling the burn because you, it's like not being picked for, you know, the Little League baseball team and you wonder why. People who are voting, they have no opportunity. They have no hope of seeing everything that's out there, even everything good. Mm -hmm. People are playing telephone. Somebody calls up somebody and says, what do you like? And there are people who move little bundles of voters in a certain direction. And and, and those people are old guard Hollywood. They're studio Hollywood. And uh, they'll be in touch with people who... It's like, it's, like, it's like a chain, and that person then is in touch with people who are costume designers and set designers and do different jobs who haven't made a movie in 25 years, and membership in the Academy is their one lifeline to the industry still that they take very seriously. And that's been a problem for years, and your situation is emblematic of the fact that it's only getting worse, only getting worse. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the, the reforms they're trying to talk about, I'm not informed enough about how to— make it more diverse or make it more reflective of our society and our world now because there's also a part of any art and any guild that is about protecting the legacy and protecting, you know, uh, um, the rights of former members of their industry. You know, there's, you can't just strip away membership, but maybe there's a another way to, to, to weigh it. I don't know. It's just because you, you, you want to believe like health insurance, you know, or social security that, you know, you've put a, a lifetime into this industry that, you know, until you die, you'll still be respected. Yeah. There's an annuity there for you. Yeah. Um, you said you wrote the screenplay, you adapted the screenplay for Beasts of No Nation when? 2006. So you carried it around for a while. It's been around. Yeah. yeah. It's only, it, I didn't rewrite it until about uh, six months before we started shooting. Did True Detective help you get that job? No, 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 no. I actually had the producers and the People financing. were so admiring of the TV show, I wonder if it helped you. It, um, I, you know, it didn't even help in terms of pre-sales. I had Idris and, and the show, and that didn't help. What was the budget, if you don't mind me asking, for the film? It was uh, six million. And where'd you shoot? In Ghana, West Africa. You're not married? Not married. You have no kids? No kids. So you go to Ghana for how long? You prepped for how long? I prepped there not long enough. I think we had about eight, nine weeks of prep. I was down for about a week. I had malaria right before we started shooting. I was bedridden. Uh, I was able to get some final rewrites done to lock, you know, lock the script before we went into production. But um, I don't think I could ever do a project like that again. It definitely took a lot out of me. How did you find your lead actor? I had a casting director I brought out who was uh, A.V. Kaufman's son, Harrison Nesbitt. He's, uh, he was 23 when he came out there, pretty much fresh out of undergrad. He had helped out on Life of Pi. I knew what I was looking for in terms of street casting. Uh, this wasn't something where we were going to be able to like make t- TV and radio announcements and get thousands of kids to show up. I mean, we were going to have to go out in the neighborhoods and, and find these kids. And that's exactly what he did. And he got a small team of Ghanaians together, and they went everywhere. What's the boy's name again? Abraham Atta. Oh, my God. Where's yeah. he from? 
So he's from a, a neighborhood called Shimon. That's kind of a poor neighborhood. It's a, it's a working neighborhood in uh, in Accra. And uh, had he acted before? He'd never really acted before. He did a couple of like you know in church, you know, some scenes in church from the How Bible. How did you direct him? We did a, a kind of a. It was a, a boot camp, if you will, of acting. About two weeks before we started shooting, we had about 30 kids who were sort of finalists for all the roles. And uh, we just taught them the, the, the basics, you know. Uh, this wasn't going to be something where they could just feel it out. Like, they, they needed some tools. You didn't have time yeah. to rely on them. Yeah. No, they had to give them some I had to give them, instruction. you know, and exercises, too. Like, one of the things we had to kind of uh, pull out of their toolbox was the soap opera style acting that they're used to. A lot of the Nollywood films and the Ghanaian version of Nollywood films are very... Uh, the, I'm the tone, what is Nollywood? Uh, Nigeria style. The, the, you know, you <laughs> is know, that what they call Nollywood? Nollywood, yeah. That's so funny. And, uh, I mean, they're most, the most prolific uh, film-producing country in the world, I think, even more than India. Uh, but um, there's a style of acting there that's oftentimes very, very big. And uh, this film, we wanted to pull it back. So a lot of it was, rather than indicating an emotion, it was just trying to access a memory to feel it. So much more of a Strasbourg thing. And um, we did two weeks of that and, and tried to, to work on the different sort of emotional beats he would go through in the, in the, in the movie. And all the kids did it because we had to see who was the one who was best at it. And Abraham just always came at it from a much more, uh, um, a smaller and much more sort of honest perspective. He, he, he was from the one from the get-go that wasn't overacting. If anything, I had to pull it more out of him. So, you, so is it safe to say that you had a pool of young boys or—, or, or uh, He was 12 when we shot. Yeah, a pool of kids, let's say, around that age, and you weren't quite sure who would play. The, the, the one who would play that lead role would emerge from that pool, correct? He, he had to because at, at that point, you know, Harrison had saw over 2,000 kids, and I had seen tape on a couple hundred, and these were the, the top 30. You know, we weren't going to find them anywhere How else. did the shooting go? It was hard because even on the first— well, What was hard about Everything. Weather? <laughs> Weather. We didn't—you don't even have radar there. You know, like in Louisiana, we get rainstorms all the time. But you could look on the Doppler and see if it's gone in 15 minutes or four hours. Who was your DP? And make plans. I, I was a DP. So um, that wasn't the hard part. I mean, it was physically strenuous. I think the hard part was that we just— Your Soderbergh. Never had the money, never had the time. Soderbergh's a much smarter guy than me, so he, he had that no, going no. for him. Um, but he shoots his own stuff. Yeah. I mean, I mean Soderbergh— You like it? He's a machine, you know. He he can edit when he goes home. Like I'm, uh, I'm dead. Soderbergh is a cyborg. I'm told from people who <laughs> yeah. he's a cyborg. But 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 I mean, yeah. why do you uh, uh, you prefer it? I like shooting. Yeah. Did you do that in uh, True Detective? I've always been really involved in camera. It's just one of the things. Did you did you I operate never, on True Detective? I, I didn't like to operate. I don't want to like get involved in that level. Like I'd rather be able to pay attention to performance and not so, the frame. So you didn't operate in Beast of No Nation. I wasn't supposed to operate, uh, but our our steady cam operator, who was our A cam operator. Uh, pulled his hamstring on the very first day, the first setup, and the second take. And after that, uh, he couldn't move the camera. So I the became, NYU degree came in handy. It came in handy. They, they, we do everything there. So. Who'd have thought? <laughs> <laughs> I was, you know, boom operating sometimes. Um, Describe your lead actor to me. <sighs> Abraham or Idris? Idris. Uh, Idris. Idris is... Uh, I, should, I shouldn't say that, yeah. Idris, I shouldn't say the lead actor, because the, the other boy, uh, the young boy, he is Abraham. He is very, every inch the lead actor as well. Yeah. Go ahead. It was, it was that what is no such thing as a big actor or a small actor. It's even though Abraham's like four feet tall. Um, but uh, Idris is, uh, he's a force of nature. Uh, very How did you find him? I found him through his work. 
essentially. I was very aware of his work. Uh, when I was, and you had freedom to cast who you wanted to cast. It was you call it you can call it freedom or the limitations of of the subject matter. But nobody and, gave you shit then, about we need a name we can raise money off of. I mean, it just, I mean, for me, it just is a name. He's a huge. Even no, but, when, but even no one. That, that aside, no mm. one came to you and said, "Well, here's another list." Oh right. Oh, Matthew McConaughey played this role. <laughs> Robert Daddy Jr. Yeah, Robert. Exactly. He's already done that role. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, Idris was uh, on a very, very short list of actors, um, maybe two, and uh, and he was my first choice just based on the the gravitas, the you know the way you're describing Woody, where he's masculine, you know, he's intelligent, sensitive. but he's sensitive, all all those qualities. He, he could he really and any and they're all living at the same time in him. It's not like he's like changing colors like a wheel. He's he's they all exist, you know, coexist, and. Um, I needed someone that could pull off that kind of, uh, uh, I don't want to call it gang leader, but that sort of uh, uh, town hall charisma, which is different than, say, like a Mugabe. Yeah. In the book, he dies. And in the movie, How he does he die? He's shot by one of the soldiers in, this, in a very similar scene. In that scene. final encampment when they say goodbye to him? Yeah. One of them shoots him? Yeah. Does it build to a head where he shoots him? Kind is, of. Is, is he bullying them and he's taking the money and one of them shoots him? It's basically similar. They're just run down, and they have no goal anymore. Everything's sort of been a lie. And then one of the soldiers named Rambo uh, uh, shoots him. Kid. He's like a teenager, essentially. Uh, why didn't you do that? In the, my first draft, I had Agu do it because I wanted Agu to take control of his destiny and make a choice and in, in, in some way uh, vengeance for everything he's experienced. And then as I did my rewrite, I thought that was too easy. It was too buttoned up and neat way out of the story. And that life, which I think in the banal sense we were talking about earlier, the more insidiously evil and frightening version is that he still exists out there like a shark in murky water. Yeah. In my version, he would have, like, something would have happened. I don't know what it would be. I'm not a good writer. He would have tripped and fallen on some Burmese tiger trap or anything. And he begs <laughs> the kid to kill him, to yeah. put him out of his misery. Because it was one of those characters where, I mean, because that sex scene with the, him and the boy is so subtle and so quiet. And, 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 and he's, you know, he's obviously he's high and he's kind of blitzed out the, uh, the character. And uh, when that happens, everyone I was in the room with, we were all like, oh, I hope this guy dies. <laughs> in, the screen, dies in the screenplay, there wasn't much more. There's a couple more lines in there that, that kind of make it even more uncomfortable. And uh, Idris was kind of—he was the one in almost the—we were talking earlier about sex scenes. He was the one who's like, I'm not comfortable going that far. I just can't do that. He, You know, newborn child. He's got a daughter, young daughter. He's like, that's just something I'm just—I can't— Yeah, you don't want to go there. You can't go there. What are you working on now? I am working on a miniseries right now. I'm not going to direct the whole thing. It's uh, Caleb Carr's uh, The Alienist. Just starting to do the casting part again. It kind of reminded me of when we were doing True Detective because there's this exciting uh, step in that development process as you start figuring out who are the people who are going to make this come to life. And with each actor, it's a totally different thing, you know. And, and when you kind of imagine them in these leading roles, it, it can go in different directions. It changes the way I'd want to write it. When you work with actors, do you feel, because you seem very um, sanguine, but when you go on the set now, uh, do you feel intimidated when you have to deal with the crew and the actors, or you feel very confident now? I think that the first week— We're Confident of, enough. Confident enough. The first week of shooting is always a bit wobbly as you try to figure out pace, tone, figure out how you know to, to communicate with people you're not comfortable with yet. 
And what you ultimately want is to get on a good sort of direct line, you know. But you never know what someone's limit is. You don't know with an actor where they're going to get irritated that you're just talking too much. I, I talked to Chiwetel uh, Ejiofor about this a little bit, about uh, Great actor. amazing actor and about self-directing. And when you start to do more projects and not getting, especially if you've worked with greats who, you know, when the day is done, you know what you've done and, and you don't need to go watch the dailies uh, and you know what your character is uh, onto next and how to jump in these new scenes. And, and then you go into something else where you're getting nothing. How do you survive those productions? And that's when you start, this skin gets thicker and you just rely on yourself and you get confused. Too. Yeah. Well, that's the part. The, the, the thicker skin comes from learning not to get that, make that confusion make you feel insecure and affect the performance, especially if you're operating on your own. I think for me, my style at least is what I've learned uh, uh, is it's usually about the conversations before we start shooting. And if we're, if we're 100% on the same page about who that character is, then every idea that comes out of the actual shooting is a continuation of that conversation. And it's not like you're Hopefully. just making up direction just to, to fill the space with more words, you know, between takes. Because there is that stillness I was talking about in Jane Eyre where I learned where, where I didn't have to say anything because we, we had talked about beforehand was working. So we can just move on. I remember when I was going to uh, a friend of mine who was a producer, director, and writer wanted me to do a movie, which was based on a, uh, the, the character was a big-ticket NBA basketball coach, and he was friends with Pat Riley, and this is when Riley was uh, coaching the Knicks here in New York, and he took me out to the facility up in New Paltz where the team was training then, and then we got in a car, and we went to Riley's home and had lunch with him, and I said to him, what's the job? What's the task? And he said, I have people who've been dominant in this sport since they were eight years old. He said they were dominant in their peewee leagues. They were dominant in high school, college. They get into the pros. He said they've been dominating this game and playing thousands of basketball games for nearly two decades. And he goes, and my job is to walk into a room and make them care one more time. How do you make them care enough to go out there? And, and a lot of directors don't feel that they have that obligation that, you know, you're going to come and you're getting paid all this money or whatever the bullshit is that, you know, you, you motivate yourself. And I wouldn't mind if the director came in every now and then and, and tried to enlist me in the cause and say mm-hmm. something. The last thing I want to say to you is, I mean, uh, again, about Beasts of No Nation is whenever people talk to me about movies and they extol some movie they've seen, I always smile and I say, well, let's calm down here because the big question is, would you watch the movie again? Mm-hmm. Uh, you made an amazing movie. Thank you. You made an incredible movie. When that boy goes running into that war, I was sobbing. I was sobbing. And I hope that uh, you'll stick with your instincts because your great instincts have gotten you where you are now. I did a small part in Warren Beatty's movie about Howard Hughes. And I said to him, I said, you know, your problem is you don't make enough movies. You know, you're just too slow. And I'll say the same thing to you. Don't stop making movies. Keep making movies. Don't, don't take too much time off. You know what I mean? You know, I was supposed to make a movie last year, and it sort of fell apart. That sort of mid-range Hollywood $40 million film fell apart just because sometimes you're just not creatively in sync with uh, the money people. You can watch Beasts of No Nation on Netflix. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. 
Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.